Hi, my name is Bryce. I have a new life in Christ, and I'm in recovery from fear of man, pride, um, drug and alcohol abuse, pornography, and masturbation in this past week, um, fear of intimacy. Hey, y'all. It's good to be here with you guys again. We are jumping back into the series, Deja Vu, and this is the second week. And so if you weren't here last week, Ryan talked about Genesis 3.15 and how it points to Jesus. Um, But before we jump into this week's, I want to call something out that I know is true about all of us, is that there are some things in our lives that when we hear it, see it, smell it, um, those are good senses, um, it brings us straight back to a moment or an event in our lives. Like there's something so connected and so associated with this event or this place um, that it almost zooms us straight back in. And if you know me at all, you know that I love this band called Mumford & Sons. I think they're second to none. I think they're the best of all time. And so there's times in my life when I would listen to the album so intensely that all I can think about when I listen to a specific song is that moment in time in my life. And this particular moment or this particular song that I'm about to share with you, because I'd love to bless y'all, is (laughs) as see, it points back to this season of my life right after I graduated high school and I was driving on my way to this place. He said, he said, I only told you one lie, but when it could have been a thousand, it, should, it might as well have been a thousand. Dang, those are some lyrics. Good job, Marcus Mumford. All right, but that time, that Tompkins Square Park, that song, the live version specifically, if you're on Spotify, um, that song points me straight back. I can like almost picture it and feel it. I'm driving my 2010 blue and black Toyota Corolla. It's got a little busted up thing on the backside because somebody like bump, a, a drunk guy hit me. Um, I was okay. He was my friend at the time. <laughs> and he's still my friend, I swear. Um, yeah, anyways. Um, but we were driving, and I'm, like, looking at the stars. It, we're driving, it's like 2 a.m. We're driving to Colorado. Started at, like, 10 p.m. I was 17 or 18. Don't ask me why. But it brings me straight back to that place. And just the reality of it is that songs or smells or things like that have this uncanny ability to be so associated with an event that it'll bring us straight back to that moment. And it, bring, and it uh, reveals or kind of draws up in us this feeling of meaning. Like there's such meaning that is associated with those types of things. Um, and what I, the reason why I start there is because so it is with the stories of the Old Testament. So it is with the stories of the Old Testament. The people who are living with Jesus at the time of the, what we would call the New Testament all knew the stories of the Old Testament really, really well. And not only did they know them well, they also lived in the areas in which they occurred. So they were walking around the Sea of Galilee. They were walking around all these really significant um, areas that the Scripture talks about I mean, in the Old Testament. Um, and so what I want y'all to do is, or what, oh, sorry, to add this, is like this, not only did these, that's some rain. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad y'all aren't here. This is a good shelter. Um, we, in the Old Testament, it talks about all this heritage and culture speaks to the people who are living with Jesus, their heritage and culture, but it also speaks to God and what God has been doing in their people for generations. And so picture this with me now. Imagine Jesus' followers on the day Jesus was crucified, and they're walking up on to this mountain, and they look up for the first time, they see Jesus hanging on a cross. He's hanging on the cross, and he's on top of this mountain, and something clicks. They kind of have this deja vu moment. They're like, hey, something, something about here, it was a tragic scenario, but something about here doesn't seem necessarily new. Like, I've seen this before. This seems familiar. And they would, be, they would have been immediately reminded of this scenario that also happened on top of a mountain between God and Abraham, the father of their faith. 
as they would call him. And so tonight we're gonna jump in to the second week of Deja Vu, and we're gonna be speaking directly to this story of Abraham and Isaac that we find in Genesis chapter 22. But before we speak directly of that story, I wanna give y'all some context. So God calls Abraham in, or my bad, in Genesis 3.15, God promises, this is what Ryan spoke about last night. God promises that he's gonna save humanity from sin. He's gonna save him through a man um, who would be the Messiah. And then in chapter 12, God calls this man named Abraham um, out from this land, and he says to leave everything and to start a whole new life, to start a whole new people, and that new people would be his people, God's people. And that the blessing of Genesis 3.15, the promise, the Savior would come through his family and bless the whole earth. And then God makes a promise to him. He said, I'm going to do this through you, whether you want me to do it or not. Like, I love you, and you're with me, and I'm going to bless you. And then he promises Abraham something odd, a son. The reason why that's odd is because Abraham is 100 years old, 100. That's a centenarian. We don't have a lot of those nowadays. But um, he was super old, and so was his wife. His wife is 99 years old. And um, so they were kind of like confused. They didn't really know if God was going to do it, but they trusted him anyways. They went, and then God provided him a son, and they named him Isaac. And so this is where we pick up now in Genesis chapter 22. Um, Abraham and Isaac. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, by the way, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham not really knowing what he's thinking, in my opinion. I don't know what he's thinking, but it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day after traveling for three days, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And so basically what happens here is God calls, God promises Abraham a son, Then at some point in time, he calls Abraham to take his son, and he just needed to remind him, hey, this is your only son, by the way. And not only is he the only son, but he's the only son that you love. Take him to this land called Moriah, and there's a mountain there, and you are to sacrifice your son. I'll show you the way. Sacrifice your only son, whom you love, on the mountain. And Regent, if you're reading this for the first time or you've read it before, you may be asking yourself, why would God ask Abraham to do that? Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he loves, on a mountain somewhere in the land of Moriah? And what I want to pose is that really, if you do some study here, you understand that that isn't the point of what God's trying to do. But I think the question God really is trying to ask is not necessarily, will you sacrifice your son for me or go and do this, sacrifice your son? But the question he's probably really trying to ask is, will you trust me? It's not so much will you sacrifice your son as it would be will you trust me. Are you willing to trust me, Abraham? Trust me enough to give up everything for me for what I would provide for you. That's the question. That's the test. And at the time, Abraham doesn't know it's a test. um, But for us, Regen, have you ever felt, felt that way? Have you ever felt like God was asking you to give something up that you didn't want to give up? And um, I know that a lot of us can relate with this because not, it's not really difficult to understand a scenario in which, hey, there's something, 
um, broken and evil and destructive this behavior, whatever it may be, addiction in my life that I need to get rid of. And you probably wouldn't be confused if somebody said, hey man, I think God wants you to stop doing that thing. Like y'all would probably understand that. You wouldn't be confused. Um, and there's things like that in our lives currently that we may need to give up. But what about the times when God asks you not to give up something that's sinful and destructive, but to give up something that doesn't feel like sin or that isn't sin? What about the times when he asks you to give up something you think is a good thing? Because if you look here in the text, Abraham, God didn't ask Abraham to give up wine or like his shekels or his sandals or like his nice tent that he slept in or his camels. He asked him to give up his son, his only son whom he loved. And on top of that, God promised him a son. I don't think Abraham asked for it. God promises him a son and then gives it to him as a good gift and they rejoice and they thank God. And then God asks him to give it up, to sacrifice him. And here's the takeaway for us, Regent, is that often, hear me when I say this, often, and this is profound for me, that's why I share this, it says, often it isn't the gift that God is asking you to give up, it's the worship of the gift that God is asking you to give up. God has created the world He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's created the world and he's created us on it and he's created it for our good, to bless us, to be enjoyed. And so um, it really isn't, um, the problem isn't that we love the gifts that God gives to us. The problem is that we worship the gifts that God gives to us. Does that make sense? It isn't that we love the thing God gives to us, it's that we worship it. And hear me also when I say, I'm not trying to berate anybody, but what you worship you are a slave to. You are enslaved to what you worship. That's, that's what humans are. We are essentially worshiping beings. So what you worship is what you are a slave to. And the difficult thing about it, and I'm sure you know all too well, is that sometimes what enslaves you doesn't look harmful. It often looks normal. What enslaves you isn't necessarily, doesn't look harmful, but it often looks normal. And so when you have that relationship, that, that boyfriend or girlfriend or um, those friendship, that codependent relationship, and your mind is probably not codependent, but you have these relationships, um, and there's something broken and destructive about it, but it's a good thing, and so you never let it go. You think God's asking you to step aside, let that pass, and you're like, well, no, it's not really sin, so why would I give it up? Or maybe it's a job opportunity, and you're working really hard. You're like, well, it's a good thing to work hard. God's called us as men or as women to work hard at our jobs and to succeed and to provide, but then you never see your family. And God's asking you to give up this thing that's a good thing, but you've made it an ultimate thing in order to value what he's calling you to value. Or maybe it's your body's health. Like, we are supposed to take care of the bodies that God has given to us. That's what being a human being is. We have bodies. But some of us make it an ultimate thing, and then all we can think about, all we can um, prepare for is for how we will um, steward our bodies, and we become, we become idolatrous of the way that we look. Um, or it's comfort and security if you're me. Something you would think, oh, man, like, no, it's good to rest. It's good to feel comfortable and secure. Like, yes, those are good things. God's created us to do it. But when it becomes the ultimate thing, um, it creates destructive, destructive habits. I fall into isolation. I said fear of intimacy earlier. It's because I would rather be safe 
than be unsafe and vulnerable with other people. Um, God gives us good gifts, region, but when good gifts are elevated over God, it brings destruction to our lives. When good gifts are elevated over God, it, be, it brings destruction to our lives. It's the worship in our hearts that leads to the destructive habits. It's not the thing itself. Like the relationship itself is not sin. But what we do with that relationship becomes sin. And because it's ultimate and it's not just a good thing, but we've elevated it over, we've elevated it over God and we become enslaved to it, we will do anything in order to satisfy it. You know what I'm talking about? Like that relationship that you want so badly because, and maybe you don't even know why you want it, but it's something you feel like you can't live without. And so you will go as far as you can in order to preserve that relationship. Maybe it's sexually. Maybe you'll give your life over. Maybe you'll harm yourself in order to preserve this relationship. Or maybe it's comfort. And because you don't feel comfortable and you're seeking it everywhere, you'll numb yourself in any way that you can. And it's causing destruction to your body. You even rationalize to yourself why you think you can continue to do it. Because, well, you know, like, if I eat that thing, it's not really sin. Or if I spend time with that person, or if I do this, or I do that, it's not really sin, technically, so I should keep doing it. And then you look up one day, and you've been doing it for six months after you've been telling yourself that you shouldn't be, because you know God wants you to give it up. Again, that thing isn't sin, but it leads you there, and you can't stop, and it owns you, because you're enslaved to it. But the good news is, is that God desires to free you from what enslaves you. It's the reason why he's providentially brought you into this room. He wants, to, he wants to free you from what enslaves you. And he's the only one who can provide a way for that to happen. The only one, as we're going to see here, as we pick back up Genesis chapter 22, verse 9. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, after they'd been traveling for three days, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. He's going to go through with it. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham. And then Abraham said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Don't even touch him or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you, would, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see that? He, he says, withheld your son, your only son. He goes through great lengths, God does, to say something very specific. He says, you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham, after hearing that from God, lifted up his eyes from what he was doing and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. By his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And because it was this burnt offering in place of Isaac, I, or Abraham rejoiced and he named that place, that mountain, the place that he was on, he named the place where he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, but instead sacrificed the ram because God provided. He named that place the Lord will provide. And if you don't know, Moses is writing this. And when Moses is writing this by the power of the Spirit, God decided to say, hey, and as it is said to this day, not only did Abraham name it, to the, name it that, but as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That location, on this mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham and Isaac go to this, go to this land of Moriah. Abraham's like, I don't know. I'm going to trust God. 
and in trusting him that he will provide a way, he builds an altar and he's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. But in the last couple of moments, we don't really know what that looks like. I'm sure it would have been tragic and difficult. God yells and he says, stop, don't touch him. Here's a ram in place of Isaac. So instead of Abraham's only son, whom he loves, God provided a sheep in Isaac's place. And thanking God, he names it. God provided. God provided. And he will provide. He not only did he provide, but he will provide. And he goes, again, he, he says, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, in that same exact place, the same exact geographical location, Mount Moriah, in the presence of all of Jesus' followers and the Roman soldiers, as Jesus hangs on a cross on the same mountain, it was provided. It was provided. God the Father took his son, his only son, whom he loves, he took him to Mount Moriah. Think about that. God's doing the same thing. He's been saying it from the very beginning. He's coming for you. I'm going to redeem you. He takes Jesus Christ, his only son, to Mount Moriah. And instead of us, he offered him as a true sacrificial lamb for our sin in our place. So instead of us, like Isaac, being sacrificed and paying the penalty of death, Jesus was sacrificed like the lamb. Instead of Bryce being sacrificed, Jesus was sacrificed. Instead of James, it was Jesus. Instead of Michael, it was Jesus. Instead of Haley, it was Jesus. Instead of Sierra, it was Jesus. Instead of you, it was Jesus sacrificed on the cross in your place so you wouldn't have to bear the penalty of death. And the reality of it was is that Jesus wasn't stuck in a thicket by his horns. Jesus was willingly stuck to a cross on your behalf. It wasn't by accident. He laid his life down for you willingly. He chose to. That's good news. And because of that, because of what Jesus did, because of the power of the cross, you can be freed from the sin that enslaves you. You can be freed from the sin that enslaves you. It's true. It's real. I've experienced it. And if you receive him by faith, if you receive the payment that he paid for you on your behalf on the cross, by faith, you can be made new, brand new. The old you is nailed to the cross with Jesus. The old you is nailed to the cross with Jesus. And now, after having received him by faith, if you are a believer here in Christ, he is continuing to change you and to save you from the power of sin today. It doesn't look perfect. It's not like a straight up and to the right it looks difficult. There's struggles. There's difficulty there. But he's changing you from the inside out, and he's good. And he can do that because of what he's done on the cross. Listen, regeneration. God has been speaking his redemption plan from the very beginning of time. He's not been hiding it. He's not revealed it all the way, but he's been saying, I'm coming for you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it sufficiently. Like when I pay for sin on the cross, your whole, can your whole record of debt is canceled. It's gone. Washed away clean. You're a brand new child, and now you're in my family, and you're going to be with me forever. And he can heal you. He can free you. He's offering you salvation and healing tonight if you haven't accepted it.
You can do that through prayer. You can go to him. Say, whatever it is that I just heard on the stage, whatever that is, Lord, I want it. So will you take me? You can pray that prayer tonight. You can pray it now. And let me tell you this. He can change everything. He can change everything once you walk with him. Tonight we're going to hear a story about a man named Jonathan who has accepted Christ, has been chosen and become a child of God, and is now having his whole life changed because of his goodness, not his own. So would you all join together and welcome up Jonathan Spaulding as he shares his testimony.